0: Hey, y'all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon to be announced store. Your donations will also be tax deductible, as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful, and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now, on with the show. So, I mean, it's just incredible how
1: he's he's taking on the shame of the world and yet exposing the folly and the injustice of the world at the same time, which is just the yeah. the cross is beautiful. Like, not only is it logical and truthful, it's beautiful. Like you can't nobody in Hollywood could write a script no. that 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 tops the crucifixion
2: of Christ.
0: although Mel Gibson tried to.
2: Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet yeah, once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast. We're here to bridge the gap to Reformed Christian Theology for your listening pleasure. And today we're on a book club episode. We got Jeremy Treat on. He wrote a book within the Short Studies in Systematic Theology series published by Crossway. His book is The Atonement in Introduction. So if you guys go to our show notes and click that link to crossway. It'll take you to this book and the whole series. So you might as well get the whole series. We've had some of the, some of the other authors on for uh, our guests talking about this within our book club series. And so uh, if you guys also take a, check out our show notes, you'll see other helpful reminders of how to connect with us, what our show's about uh, what we do. This is on YouTube as well. So if you want to, Uh, Subscribe to us on YouTube and check that out. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. But something I do for all the book clubs, or most of them at least, I read an endorsement. And we're lucky enough to have a lot of guests on uh, that are pretty credible. And they write endorsements for books that we bring on. So Michael Byrd, I'll pick this one. We've had Michael Byrd on. Uh, He said this about uh, Jeremy's book. Jeremy Treat has written a brilliant yet accessible introduction to the doctrine of atonement. He shows what Jesus' cross is about, how the cross saves, why it matters, and how it relates to the Christian life. This is a learned yet eminently readable book on a complex topic, a great starting place for anyone who wants to wrestle with the meaning of the cross and how it relates to theology as a whole. So another reminder on our show notes is if you go to the local church finder link, you can find a church to call home if you need to find a church to call home. And so um, I don't know if I forgot anything else. So I'll let Peter further introduce our guest today, Jeremy Treat.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure uh, to introduce to our audience, those who may not know who he is already. Jeremy Treat, who is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality LA a church in Los Angeles, California, which I've actually attended once or twice in my time at Biola. It's like 30 minutes north of Biola. He's also an adjunct professor of Theology Biola University. So we share a lot in common because I went to Biola and is the author of Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, and the Crucified King, Atonement and Kingdom, Biblical and Systematic Theology, which we'll kind of touch on a little bit today as well. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Treat.
1: Yeah, what's up, guys? It's good to be here with
0: you. It's good to be, it's good to be here. You're you're uh I'm trying to think anybody else who we've had who's like actually closer in person to us than <laughs> we've had a few biola professors on. Mm-hmm. And I think outside of them, you're the closest to us. Nice. You're like, you're like probably 30 miles north of us right now, which is pretty crazy to think about.
1: Thirty miles north, but it would take us about two hours. That's that's, that's right. LA for
0: you. That's two hours without traffic and like four hours <laughs> with traffic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Whatever, but this this. Before I even get to the questions, we we like a little bit of banter and stuff. But uh, whatever anybody talks about traffic outside of California, I was like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. That's that's not traffic.
1: No, no, they don't they don't get it. Whenever I have people who come here and visit, they'll look something up on GPS and be like oh, it's only three miles away. Let's go there. I'm
2: like, like, oh, if only you knew. That's like
1: 45 minutes away. (laughs) Take a day trip. It does
2: not matter the mileage; it's always no, the time. Yeah. you're safer walking a... there
0: than you are driving there, <laughs> and almost everywhere in Los Angeles, yeah. You get if you actually,
2: ask you, be, somebody...
0: you may not, you may not be safe for walking there. You probably should drive there if you're in Los Angeles, okay. depending on where you are and what time of day it is.
2: Yeah, if you if you ask somebody how far something is, you'll never hear somebody here say the mileage. It's always no, the time. Oh no, that's
0: not a thing. Yeah, mileage yeah. here is not a thing. You'll say minutes. That's always yeah. or hours.
2: I will say, though, I moved from Seattle to here, and the Seattle traffic is so bad, and the drivers in that area are so bad <laughs> that I actually found it weirdly, in some ways, easier in this area. Interesting.
0: You're the only person I've ever heard say that sentence. To,
2: I don't know. i just talked to some people from Seattle that have driven in the LA, Orange County area. Um, there's, I think, there's I think some Jeremy's pros. about
0: to share some wisdom with us right now.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I, I I'm from Seattle too, so oh, I, there you go. It's gotten flooded there, but I was gonna say I was in Jakarta last year, and oh, here's I've, how I, I've heard, yeah. Here's how I would describe the traffic of Jakarta. It's like you take LA traffic and then you add a million motorcycles to it. <laughs> and they're just like swarms of motorcycles yeah. going yeah. in and out of traffic, like any kind of gap. There's like a family on a motorcycle, like sw- like speeding through there. It's wild.
3: Wow.
0: There you go. Well, yeah, you're like at least LA has rules and maybe that's, <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So more, more substance, even though we can talk about traffic all day long beyond just your kind of crossway academic church pile, let our listeners know a little bit more about Jeremy Tree.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town in Alaska, uh, lived there. Alaska, Alaska, Kenai, Alaska. I lived there till I was 12 years old. My dad was hmm. a cabinet maker uh, we moved to Seattle when I was 12 and so did uh, middle school and high school in mm-hmm. Seattle and oh. uh, still have a lot of friends I'm there. My little brother's still there and we were just actually there this last weekend. So mm-hmm. I love Seattle. Um, but yeah, my family and I, we've been in L.A. for 10 years now. Uh, Pastor Reality L.A., which I just feel like is such a privilege and joy mm-hmm. and to, get to teach at Biola, which I think is uh, the greatest school in the world. So I'm so grateful to be able to do what I do. Um, my wife and I have four daughters, so they are eight, ten, twelve, and thirteen.
0: You're you're outnumbered. It's one to five right now. Oh
1: man, we even our dog is a
0: girl. I mean, you're know, <laughs> one to six, yeah. Jeez. Yeah,
1: I'm surrounded. I'm I'm the man of the house, literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I love it, man. I love my girls and we love living in Los Angeles and getting to do the ministry that we do.
0: Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So two-part question kind of i'll start with the first one and i'll ask the the next one um because you've you've technically not technically you have written on atonement before um and really with the kingdom of god and you talk about this in this current book too but what are you what are you hoping this new book will add to the conversation you began with the crucified king and then added to that why did you write the atonement after writing this first book too
1: yeah, I mean, so my, my first book, The Crucified King, was me setting out to answer the question, uh, what do the kingdom and the cross have to do with one another? And mm-hmm. in my experience, you had some people who champion the kingdom, others who cling to the cross.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: usually it's one to the exclusion of the other. Yeah. And so in that book, I I tried to show that uh, their kingdom and cross are integrated in scripture and in theology. Yep. You really can't understand one apart from the other. Um, but that that book was essentially my doctoral dissertation. Mm. So it's it's scholarship. I mean, yeah. I, well, the people in my church who like my preaching and then try and read that book, I'm like, like two different I'm interacting with German scholarship and yeah, yeah, yeah. all this stuff. And so that one is, it's much more academic. Uh, the book that, that's coming out now, The Atonement, is it's it's totally different because i'm just trying to say what did christ accomplish on the cross and talking about the doctrine of atonement in a way that it's theology but i'm trying i tried to write in such a way that i'm I'm thinking of somebody in the church Mm -hmm. who says i want to get into theology where should i start Mm -hmm. Um, and so i would love for people in my church or other churches to read this book and part of that is that what a trend that I see in our society today is that people are shaping their theology based off of hot topics mm-hmm. and reactionary debates on Twitter.
0: Mm-hmm. So really? What- I haven't seen this before. This is brand new news to me. Yeah, I
1: know, I know. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just an East Hollywood thing, I guess, but
0: <laughs> I guess uh, is just isolated. Yeah.
1: Whatever kind of the, the, controversy of the day is, whether it's racism or Mm -hmm. gender uh, ideology, sexuality, people are kind of going and they're reading up on all of these things. And that's how they're building their theology. Mm -hmm. And they're missing out on really foundational core doctrines that you really have to understand to get into that. So look, I'm I'm all for people trying to understand critical race theory and understanding all this kind of stuff. Totally. But they haven't read anything on the image of God.
0: <laughs> wow. What it
1: means uh, to be human, as yeah, someone they're living. going for the
0: branches but not the root.
1: Exactly. So I I think one of the most neglected doctrines is the atonement. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are running after all these hot topics,
0: which is crazy people, that it's neglected.
1: People can kind of think like, oh, the atonement, whatever. You but, already
0: know um, that stuff, yeah.
1: Yeah, and in my mind, um, not only is it incredibly rich and beautiful it's underappreciated and when i kind of visit other churches and what i hear i don't hear a lot of people preaching the cross especially in a way that they're really excited about it as if it as if it's the climax of human history
0: yeah they're more Uh, excited about cultural topics than they are about biblical topics
1: exactly and you learn this as a as a teacher whether you're preaching or in the classroom that people only remember so much of the content of what you teach, but they remember what you get excited about. They Mm -hmm. remember what you think is important. And so I'm concerned for a generation that's learning theology around hot topics that are kind of changing and shifting every day. When I think a foundational doctrine, like the atonement is being neglected. And I think the atonement is it's it's foundational. I think probably a better metaphor is to say it's central and Mm -hmm. that it everything's connected to it. So I think this is a great place for people mm-hmm. to either start in theology or go deeper in theology by understanding the atonement and doing it in a way that then really does apply to everyday life. I actually think it helps us in the racism conversations, Big it helps us in gender conversations, like all of that stuff. So it's not one to the exclusion of the other, but it's seeing how important and how central this is.
0: Yeah, yeah. totally. And I, I mean, that's, That's theology. I mean, I played, I played baseball growing up and it is astonishing. When I watch major league baseball players and what they practice, they practice ground balls. They practice like just the foundational stuff. And they're amazing at it. And all these young kids come around and like, see all these like cool TikTok stuff or Instagram stuff. I got to do this. I got to do this. And they forget about taking ground balls and about hitting off the tee. And they look at their favorite baseball players and like, oh, that's what you do all day long. You just get really, really, really good at the basics the foundational yeah. stuff and then you build off of that and the same thing happens in theology. the same thing happens everywhere But i mean especially to so with theology yeah it's, it's yeah big. i was
1: i was watching i so i love basketball i played at biola okay. and um i was watching this video the other day and steph curry you know he's he's become famous for he'll shoot it and then turn around yep, before yep. the ball's even gone in yep <laughs> I was watching the, the development league uh the highlights and this guy shot it and turned around and was going the other way with his swag <laughs> yeah. and like the ball hit off the backboard, like two feet away from the rim, <laughs> not even close. I was just like, yeah. man, that's like, the reason
0: why Steph Curry can do that is he has practiced the basics a million times.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's like, tell the kids to get in the paint and work on layups and do the basic stuff. Uh, so yeah, I feel like a, a lot of the basics in terms of theology are overlooked yeah. the image totally. of God Tr- doc- people love talking debating all this stuff who's talking about the trinity you know yeah. <laughs>
3: like, yeah. pretty
1: important doctrine yeah,
3: yeah. So, totally. yeah I,
1: think, I think it's really important that we help people um, understand what a process of growing theologically looks like <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: reactionary debates not the best way to do it
0: 100
2: yeah. that's why our show exists and then that's why this series with crossway exists and the work that you're doing and it's it's speaking of foundational and fundamental things to the gospel is the atonement really and getting into the i think it's appropriate for both christians and non-christians as you're saying we need to explain what the atonement is get back to the fundamentals get back to the basics Uh, i also played baseball so i remember um in the i would say rare times I got in a hitting slump, but it's probably less rare, rare than I times. remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. My coach, you know, you go back to the, ba- get back to the fundamentals, you stop, you know, you get back to the basics. So let's get, let's get to the, that, what is the, the, the definition of the atonement and why does the atonement get described as the foolishness of the gospel?
1: Yeah. So traditionally, when we talk about the doctrine of atonement, we're talking about the meaning of Christ's death uh, what he accomplishes, how he does that. And what I want to do with that is uh, affirm that traditional approach, but expand mm-hmm. it a couple of ways mm-hmm. to be able to say um, the death of Christ is central, but we need to understand his death within the context of the incarnation, his life, and then mm-hmm. the resurrection, ascension, return of Christ. Mm-hmm. So I want to expand it in that sense. And then I also want to say, not only are we talking about how Christ's death reconciles sinners and God, but we're also talking about how Christ's death is the grounds for the renewal of creation. Mm-hmm. I want us to have a, a bigger, more expansive understanding of the atonement. And so, yeah, When I mean, at the end of the day, when we talk about the doctrine of the atonement, we're saying, what does it mean that Christ died for our sins? People die all the time. And mm-hmm. what, what, but how's his death different? Thousands of people were crucified in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, what was unique about what happened during that six hours on the cross? How can what happened then change not only the world, but change the trajectory for eternity? So that's what we're getting into with the doctrine of atonement uh, is what's the meaning Um behind that you know it's uh, we're unpacking this incredible phrase that he died for our sins um so and then the second the second part of that that you asked nick was uh you asked about the why it's the foolishness of the cross is that right
2: yeah yeah you uh why is it the foolishness of the gospel because you you start the book in the beginning of your introduction even having that title
0: and that's what Paul calls it too. That yeah, the yeah. gospel is foolishness to the world. Yeah, this is you would think this would be a big thing, but it's like people scoff at this. Why do people scoff at this? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I mean, this is where it's it's important for us to recognize that people in the first century did not have the same views of a cross as we do. Hmm. Uh, you know, you can see a, a cross hanging on somebody's necklace or tattooed on their arm or on a building on a skyline in a city. And in our culture in Western society, you see a cross and it represents something positive, love, Mm -hmm. maybe victory. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the first century, the cross, uh, uh, the symbol of a cross was the exact opposite of that. Um, It was brutal. I mean, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment. It was a way that uh, the Roman Empire executed the worst of criminals. And it was literally invented not just to kill people there's other ways you can behead people yeah. the stone them whatever
0: it is yeah but
1: yeah there's other ways to kill people it was invented to slowly torture them and publicly humiliate and shame them
3: mm-hmm. and
1: so crucifixion it's it's grotesque it's violent it's brutal i mean we're talking about uh, almost lifeless bodies Pinned to a tree, hanging on the cross. I mean, James James Cone compares it to mm-hmm. lynching in yep. America. Yep. And and, and crossing the lynching tree. Sometimes talking about the cross with people, I I have to try and break through these views of crucifixion that we had. You would have hundreds of people crucified along main highways in the Roman mm-hmm. Empire, so that people could see them. And you would have rats crawling up the cross, eating flesh. You would have birds coming and pecking out people's eyes waiting for them to die. I mean, it was grotesque. The smell would have been overwhelming. It was so grotesque that that Roman soldiers, they say they wouldn't even mention it, that they were so much above it. Mm -hmm. So when you understand that in the first century, when they looked at somebody dying on a cross, what they saw was weakness, uh, folly, and defeat. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Mm-hmm. to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So what that means is through the lens of faith, you look at the cross and you don't see foolishness and weakness and defeat. you see wisdom, power and victory. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's God's way of saving sinners. It's God doing the unthinkable of in self-giving love, giving himself and sending his son, To save us. So, I mean, that's why it's good news. That's why you could uh, take something that is so horrific and say it's good news because it's God's way of bringing salvation and bringing renewal. And that kind of brings full circle to what we were talking about earlier of like, this is basics. Like we're talking about the gospel, (laughs) talking about why the cross is good news. And it's because Jesus accomplished something glorious on it. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego, that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student to professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience, train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888 480 8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary, California today at 888 480 8474 or log on to www. W-S-C-A-L which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel and His Church.
2: Yeah, my next question you, you did partially, well you did answer quite a bit so I'll try to ask it in a different frame. Um, so we know that talking about the Roman Empire and the cross and God in His Eternal Wisdom had His Son Jesus, second part of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with Him, become incarnate during this time period in human history. Um, and so can you go into and the image of the cross has become so pervasive in Christian circles that it's lost some of its sting, so to say. Like you were saying, can you? This is kind of a his, getting the more of a historical peeling the onion back layer of like a little bit of more of a historical understanding of. Uh, why the cross was used in the Roman penal system.
1: Yeah. I mean, so one way of thinking about this is the cross was, it was a symbol of Roman power mm-hmm. in a, and, and it's political. Mm-hmm. In a sense they're saying, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, they didn't have billboards back then, but they had people crucified on highways to be able to say, this is what happens to revolutionaries.
0: This is what happens Mm -hmm.
1: to people who say, who refuse to say that Caesar is Lord.
0: Yeah. Who calls himself Lord. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So even, even that political aspect gets into it of the, the crucifixion of Christ is a political event through and through. I Mm -hmm. mean, Jesus was crucified as the King of the Jews. That's a political title. Mm -hmm. Pontius Pilate is a Roman ruler who's overseeing the whole thing. Um, I mean, the, a lot of, of the reasoning for the Jews of handing him over is because he wasn't fulfilling their political aspirations that they Mm -hmm. wanted to Mm -hmm. And so when you understand the, the first century background of what's going on there, it starts to shed light on all of that. So, I mean, I I don't know if we want to go down this road or not, you guys can decide, but there's lots of political implications that come from the cross. Yeah, totally. Yeah. you vote this way or that yep. way or you're yep. on this it's not what
0: we way. think political is in america
1: yeah it's not speaking to the american two-party system um but it's incredibly political in saying uh, that this is the kingdom of christ mm-hmm. i mean this is what i showed in the crucified king and i talk about this a yep. lot in my book the atonement as well is that uh it's a royal event the kingdom is coming through the cross of christ And that tells us it's a different kind of kingdom than we thought. Mm. It's counterintuitive. It's a kingdom that flows into a life that's reflected in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Peacemakers, right? That's different than uh, the world thinks, whether that was ancient Corinth, Rome, or Los Angeles.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But based on that political element, it makes sense why in the creeds uh, it highlights, it brings out that, he was a uh, Pontius Pilate.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. Was, highlights it, it a, mentioned. Yeah. It's an earthly judge who mm. thinks he rules the kingdom. And Jesus says, "Nah, you, you don't, you don't rule this kingdom. And it's, yeah, I love how you talk about that, but maybe, maybe if you can go a little bit into the political aspect too, as I think it does tie well with what Nick says and with what I'm about to say, like some, like what, what do you mean political? Cause you've talked about kingdom of God and there's kingdom of man. Um, Pilate has his kingdom or kind of Rome is a kingdom. And it's, dueling kings i guess if you can say like what for for americans who are like i only see politics in the two-party system like what 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 do you mean political kind of play in this
1: yeah i mean so one i'll make like a really broad point and then a more particular one the broad point is i think we're seeing this theme of the kingdom um building throughout scripture and it climaxes yeah. at the cross so it's yep. not like oh we're not talking about kingdom anymore mm. and now we're going to talk about like how jesus lays down his life in love. Yep. The, the cross is the apex of the kingdom story. And so that's showing us this through line of the kingdom of God. And so at the most basic level, I want to remind people today in the church that our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God mm-hmm. before a country and, and, and to any political party. Right. Yep. So yeah. it's that, that, and man, I feel like five or six years ago or 10 years ago, that would have seemed like a pretty basic statement. Yeah,
0: that's, that wouldn't have been that controversial. But now um, it's like, that's now like, I feel like I need to heresy. say that
1: over and over again every day that the kingdom of Christ uh, demands our ultimate allegiance and that should shape everything in life that we do, including the way we think of politics. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to shape how we vote, how we vote. I don't think it's going to tell us who to vote for. It's, yep. it's not that simple. So that's a broad point of that, like, mm. The, the kingdom uh, needs to shape our politics. and the But the more specific one I would say is that kingdom is cruciform. And what a really practical way that that plays out is how, how we think about power and authority.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So Jesus demonstrates a very different way of thinking about power and authority. And what you saw in Rome back then, you see in American politics today of power is used to, for personal gain, and to accomplish my goals at the expense of other people. Mm -hmm. And Jesus comes and says, there's a whole nother way. And he teaches his disciples on the road to the cross that we don't lord it over them like the Gentiles do, but we we use the influence that we have, the authority to serve, to bless. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus does. He's more powerful than any ruler this world has ever Mm -hmm. seen. And yet he lays down his life. He doesn't, come and attack his enemies. He literally lays down his life for them. So you see a very different understanding of power and how power is to be
2: used. And that changes everything in politics. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, with that background, the next question, please be, be as explicit as possible, as graphic as possible, because this has some big theological implications of what Christ physically went through on the cross, on the cross and what he spiritually went through on the cross. So uh, what did Christ go through on the cross, both physically and spiritually?
1: Yeah. So here's, what's interesting is in, in our American context, what's almost always focused on here is what Christ, how Christ suffered physically. Yeah. And you can read up a lot on this of that. He would have died by asphyxiation when mm-hmm. you're crucified, you're hanging, you have to pull yourself up in order to breathe. You're, yep. you're essentially getting suffocated over time as you're weakening and can't pull yourself up. And of course the pain with the nails on the mm-hmm. wrists and on the feet, the, and the physical back.
0: pain is really played up.
1: Yeah. So, so, and, and all of that's very real. There's no denying that, but here's, what's interesting. The new Testament doesn't highlight that at all.
0: It doesn't ever talk about it. Yeah.
1: None. It doesn't talk about it at all. We
0: get it from Isaiah 53, yeah. more, more or less.
1: Yeah, but even in Isaiah 53, and especially what you have the, the gospel writers doing, is they're completely highlighting the social shame of the cross, yeah. that Christ was humiliated. And that's what that's what crucifixion was meant to do. That's why they're stripped naked. Um, that's why they're put up publicly. You're in an incredibly vulnerable place position with your arms stretched out that's why it was common practice for people to come by and mock them so i actually think and this is fascinating because one of the most um one of the biggest blind spots in atonement theology in the mm. west is talking about shame hmm. Talk we don't really of- have
0: a shame guilt kind of thing in the west
1: yeah i mean at least not before twitter <laughs> um <laughs> That's and right.
0: Uh, that's right. And yeah. the on the people, on the east, like like a China, like a, not Chinese Asian cultures, Middle Eastern yeah. cultures, there's a big kind of guilt shame paradigm.
1: Oh yeah, uh, well, and I think I think every culture has guilt and shame, but there's a lot of sociologists that have done work on this and showing that there are uh, they lean different directions on yeah. that, and a lot of Asian contexts are much more honor and shame cultures. Oh, yeah, big time. Mm-hmm. And and we live in a much more individualist society that that's prone more towards guilt and more legal categories. But the thing about that is, is that the new Testament world was an honor shame society through and through
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and what the new Testament authors are showing explicitly and would have been picked up. So obviously from first century readers is that Christ is bearing our shame on the cross.
3: Mm.
1: And that's so powerful because yeah, there's like, you can find the verse that you can go to Hebrews where it talks about shame on the cross, mm-hmm. but it's written across the entire story that he's mocked publicly. I mean, the whole thing is mockery, the crown of thorns, the mm-hmm. robe, they're mocking him as a pretender King, the sign above his head that says King of the Jews. They don't think he's actually the King of the Jews. They're mocking him. Mm-hmm. It's all humiliation and shame. And so, Christ is going to the cross, bearing our shame. I think actually one of the things of him being stripped of his clothes Hmm. is you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden.
0: I was about to say, it sounds a lot like Adam and Eve.
1: Yeah, the nakedness, the shame, the attempt to cover. And so Jesus is... And there's no physical malady with
0: Adam and Eve, but they have a spiritual malady now.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I do think the physical pain is, is very real. Mm-hmm. um and and we should acknowledge that and take that into account in terms of what christ went through but i think the i think the social shame and the spiritual weight of it is actually the main thing that uh the main point that the new testament authors are making
0: yeah because they're trying to okay. tell his disciples like this is the king you follow this guy who's now mocked in front of you they're trying to like spread him out and say like why would you ever follow this guy who we just mocked yeah
1: yeah Yeah. And so, and Jesus is using that to subvert the ways of the world. When they say, if you're a king, then why don't you come down? And he could have come down.
0: (laughs) That's the thing. Yeah. He could have done everything they just told him to do.
1: He could have, but he uses his power. He shows his power through service and sacrifice rather than doing what would be easier and more comfortable for him in that situation. So, I mean, it's just incredible how he's, he's, taking on the shame of the world and yet exposing the folly and the injustice of the world at the same time, which is just the, the cross is beautiful. Like not only is it logical and truthful, it's beautiful. Like you can't, nobody in Hollywood could write a script that, that, that tops the crucifixion of Christ. Although
0: Mel Gibson tried to.
1: Yeah. But I mean, honestly, the passion of the Christ though, is, it is so much of the focus was on the physical. Yeah. It's big time. physical. Like yeah. anyone yeah. who watches that movie, yeah. you walk brutal. away like, and, and it's, it is, it, it is helpful. Cause I, I didn't yeah. really understand what the, the lashes were
2: like until mm. I saw that. And it is, yeah. like I think brutal. that's
0: where that's where a lot of Americans get their atonement theologies from, from the passion of the Christ.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and but, and he but, definitely went through that physical pain. So we're not yeah. denying. But he wouldn't that. have
0: been. He wouldn't have been the only one who did that. That was like right. everybody who was ever crucified yeah. went through that stuff.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good. I think it's a really good transition into to this to this. Like like next question, um, and like we we'll, we can hang our hats on penal substitutionary atonement. You talk about that. You're you're a penal substitutionary guy. But you're like, hey, that's not like broaden that per se, but like, let's take a look at the other theories. Let's not, let's not leave those off. Yeah. Um, And we, we maybe, maybe especially in the West, maybe more evangelical kind of reformed. We so focus on this because it's a hair on the individualistic side, uh, which is fantastic. We like, we need this, but it does neglect the other theories. Maybe if you can talk about what are the other theories of the atonement's and how, like, with this mosaic of this, we can see kind of a full orb atonement, atonement theology.
1: Yeah, so uh, I think one of the biggest um, mistakes in atonement theology is people thinking that you have to have this either-or approach. Mm-hmm. As if Christ either uh, bared the penalty for our sins or defeated Satan and demons or... Mm-hmm provided an example for us. You got to
0: sign on the one theory and one theory alone.
1: And mm-hmm. and when like when I got into atonement theology, the books that were given to me, that's what was presented to me is there's these different theories and you've got to choose which one that you think is right.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think the whole approach is wrong because it forces us to choose between truths uh that are that are both in scripture and it ultimately truncates the gospel. As if Christ didn't accomplish all of those things. Yeah, as if
0: he didn't defeat the devils. if he didn't defeat the government, as if he yeah. didn't defeat the universe, yeah.
1: So part of this is even that like... The language of theories of atonement, I try and go a different direction in my, in my new book of that, because the mm-hmm. language of theories didn't creep into the conversation until the 1850s. Yeah, Nobody in church history has talked about atonement in terms of theories. Mm-hmm. And then what you have is theologians trying to kind of fit in in the university system during the Enlightenment. And mm-hmm. they start borrowing language and they use theories and they and these theories become these um, exclusive theories mm-hmm. that can explain everything. And so I want to be able to, I want to be able to call people to understanding the fullness of the cross mm-hmm. that Christ. not only did Christ bear the penalty for our sins and accomplish victory over Satan and provide an uh, example of love way more than that. Like those are just, those are three really important ones. What about cleansing our shame?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What about adopting us into the family of God? Mm-hmm. What about, what uh, Eastern theologians have been talking about for years of participating in the triune life of God. Yeah. So, I mean, I want people to see a, have a full understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross and then being able to integrate those. Because what that doesn't mean is that you just kind of have a buffet of options of mm-hmm. like, oh, I like this or I like that. But knowing that Christ accomplished Christ's accomplishment is multidimensional and what i try and show in the book is all these different dimensions of justification and propitiation and victory and sanctification all these different dimensions they're all bound together by Christ being our substitute mm-hmm. that's the how of mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Atonement. he he accomplishes all of those things by dying in our place for our sins on mm-hmm. the cross
0: yeah and a quick little add-on before Nick's question, uh, what what I think is is rather unique in this book, and we read a ton of atonement theology stuff at Westminster. What I liked is we didn't just talk about one quote-unquote theory; we talked about all of them. Um, is your your focus on not maybe just like kind of Western theologians, like you focus on kind of the global church within no. people that you quote, people that talk about what maybe like how does how do those within or with context outside of our own who who do like inhabit these more honor shame cultures that we don't inhabit how like how did you like how did you interact with them how like how can we learn from from what they say about the cross that that can help our understanding of the cross
1: yeah i mean i i think that the cross is a global accomplishment and therefore it can be best understood from global perspectives and so that like shame is a great example of that of like um I can study shame and try and understand it, but, but the honor shame culture of the new Testament world is somewhat foreign to me. Yeah. So man, when I read Japanese authors talking about shame Mm -hmm. and then what Christ accomplished on the cross, they're helping me understand scripture in such a deeper way. Yeah. So it's been not saying,
0: don't look at this. They're like filling in your understanding of the cross.
1: Exactly. And, and I can read Western theologians talk about shame and that can be really helpful too. But I I think that, so I think uh, Asian context people from Asian contexts are going to be able to help us understand shame really well. Yeah, I think that um, African theologians are going to help Americans really understand victory over the powers Mm. really well. Um, what's really interesting is if you look at a lot of like the Gustav Allen's the like theologians who are arguing for victory as the predominant, um, approach to the atonement, a lot of them don't even believe that in actual Satan and demons,
3: like (laughs) like they
1: demythologize that stuff. So they're talking about victory, but they don't even believe like in the reality of that spiritual realm. So I'm Mm. like, let's go sit at the feet of African theologians. Who not only believe in the spiritual realm, but I think are much more in tune with it hmm. than we are in the West that's been so shaped by the Enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think this is true for the atonement. And it's why I tried to learn from majority yeah. of old scholars um in my research for the atonement. It's also just something I mean, it shapes my preaching. I mean, I'm trying to when I read, I've 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 read enough theology that I kind of know what people like me, how yep. they're gonna approach things. Same here, yeah. So I don't need to read a bunch of people who are probably going to affirm certain things, my intuitions, but I want to try and read broadly. And yeah. by God's grace, we live in a time where uh, it's more accessible than ever. There's um, so much out uh, there. Yeah. Uh, all over the world who are uh, so helpful in the way that they're talking about this. So, yeah, yeah that, that's that been really important um, for me throughout and especially with this book.
0: Yeah, it was mm-hmm. Yeah, just for those who are listening. It is. like I said, I've read a ton, I mean, mostly from Westminster, but then just some stuff personally, but we've, we were exposed to just a ton of atonement theology stuff because that's so central, but rarely did they talk about some of the global, global perspectives and it is, I mean, people have to read the book to see how those within different contexts will bring in the understanding of this and just how much it shapes your understanding of what the cross accomplishes both as a substitution for our sins, but also for everything that we go through in this life. Because like you said, we we can sometimes either so focus on the body or our own personal spiritual life that we forget we're in a community of of so much other stuff that we have to go through. Yeah, for sure. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay. Those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep, help
2: expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah, my next question is, just based on the theological meaning of the atonement, we know that Jesus had to suffer on the cross through, and it was done on by crucifixion. We know that that's true historically, biblically, that's there. But the question would be, if we kind of zoom out a little bit, why did God allow or choose that's the way Christ? Would die. In other words, why why not have him die? Other ways that was going on um, for punishment in if capital punishment during the ancient world like stoning to death or burning people alive or having them getting eaten by a lion or something like that. Yeah. Why do you think the cross was the choice theologically to have his son pay the penalty of sins on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some fun speculative conversations around this. I mean, I love Athanasius. He shaped my theology a lot. Mm-hmm, Athanasius yeah. was a fourth century African theologian. And he, he asked this question a lot. It's one of the main questions for mm-hmm. him. And I love that he says that um, Christ died on the cross because only in crucifixion does a man die with his arms outstretched that he might pull the Jews with one hand and the Gentiles mm. with the other together. <laughs> yeah. So I love that. And he says, he says <laughs> he died on a, on a cross because the cross is lifted into the air where he conquered the evil spirits. Um, so I love that. I think it's a bit speculative. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't think yeah. you're going to have scripture making yeah. those points. What I, I think what I would say about crucifixion compared to other forms of death is, is that it's public and that Christ, Christ's death for us was, was public. And I think that we have a, a public faith. I, uh, I mean, I think one of the dangers in the West, especially where we are right now, is it's fine if you want to believe your thing about religion, as long as it's uh, you keep it in the closet, you know. And so you can have your private religion. But I always like to say that Christianity is deeply personal, but it's not private. Uh, Christ died for us publicly and he calls us to represent him publicly. The other thing i would say is we've touched on this already but it's just the social shame aspect. Hmm. I think that that's a really significant aspect of um of the crucifixion and you know somebody getting beheaded uh you know kind of you know down in a in a cave uh it's death but you don't have that public shame element hmm. to it. Um So that's how I would answer that question. I think that's where where scripture leads us on that.
0: Yeah, which could be hard for us to understand, like you were saying, because we don't live in that kind of culture. And so we look at the cross as like, well, of course, that's what they did. But we don't kind of realize some of the implications behind this. And somebody who comes from a different culture who kind of gets this interplay, they're like, oh, dang, he was like, that's the way he went. Oh, man, I'm not I'm not sure that's the way I would have gone or that's I'm not sure that's the way I want my savior to go.
1: Oh, and sorry, there's one other answer to that question. I think biblically that's important is. You know, in Deuteronomy, it it talks about the the son who bears the curse Mm -hmm. uh, and hanging on a tree. Cursed Mm -hmm. is the one who hangs on a tree. And Galatians 3 makes that point exactly. Mm -hmm. So so Jesus dying on the cross is bearing the curse of Mm -hmm. us breaking the covenant with God. And that's deeply significant um, in terms of what he accomplishes on the cross and then how it's a covenantal accomplishment that restores that covenantal relationship with God.
2: It fulfills prophecy from the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was foretold. Yeah. So you you talk, and we've we've talked about this, but I want to I want to kind of press our finger on this a little bit more um, about what the, the atonement does, and both you can say horizontally and and vertically, because um, I think we Christians, and this is again, I'll qualify this. We have we have listeners all across the world, so some people are like, well, oh, that's not what I think, but we that us western christians we we tend to focus so much on the individual aspects of the atonement and we forget about what it does for us communally. Yeah. So can you help us connect the atonement and not to say to neglect the individual but to bring both the individual and communal with the kingdom of god.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think this is really important that we understand the cross as it is like you said it's a vertical accomplishment that reconciles us to god. But it's also a horizontal accomplishment that reconciles us to one another at the same time. What's important about that is it's not that community is merely an implication of the cross. It's that Christ's accomplishment is communal by nature. Hmm. So in other words, um, God doesn't just save a bunch of individuals and then, "Oh, oh, I've got a great idea. Let's bring them all together. You know, that's not what happens. Christ lays down his life for the church. And in in his death, not only are we cleansed of our sin, but we are adopted into the family of God where we're bound together by, not by DNA, but by the blood of Christ. And so in that sense, I I think when you understand the atonement as intrinsically communal, then it starts to reshape um, all all kinds of ways that you think about it. I mean, when you think about the unity of the church, for mm-hmm. example, the church doesn't need to. I mean, the church in America is so divided right now. Right, mm-hmm. the church doesn't have to go out and accomplish unity. Christ no. <laughs> already purchased the unity of the church. We just have to learn to live in light of that, which you know Ephesians four says um, to. It says to maintain the fellowship that you have. It doesn't say to attain it, but to maintain it. Mm-hmm. So the cross of Christ makes us one. And this is, you know, Ephesians chapter two is so beautiful with this because mm-hmm. Ephesians two, one through 10 is all about vertical salvation. I mean, literally in that word, seated in the heavenly realms, we're raised up, we're mm-hmm. made with God. Unfortunately, in our English Bibles, you have this white space and then another heading. You think it's a different kind of thing. And shifting gears. Yeah. But it goes on immediately and it says, but you were also estranged from the people of God. And then he talks about how through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility has been demolished and therefore we've been made one. And so in Ephesians, you you don't have the vertical without the horizontal. Um, They come together. So I, I think that's so important for us to understand the cross isn't just something that Jesus did for me and that Jesus did for you. And then we kind of figure out, you know, what it means to come together as community. He's ransoming us into the kingdom of God through his death.
3: Hmm, that's good.
2: Yeah. It makes me think of those three powerful words that Jesus said on the cross. Right it was one word. Done. It is finished.
0: To tell us that. Yeah. It was one word in Greek, but three words in English. There we go.
2: Yeah. He <laughs> totally went seminary on him. Yeah, yeah you like, did. I was,
0: I, 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 I'll admit that was a failure of mine. I was like, Oh man, this is, this is going to come out. It's going to come out. Don't come out. And it came out.
2: I'm just glad that you knew what I was going to say, but uh, yeah, it is finished. You know, it's, it's like you said, he's already. Actually, united. he probably
0: didn't speak. Sorry. He did. This is just the stupid seminary enemy, but he, he was speaking Aramaic. So it's who knows true. what he said. <laughs> yeah. true. So <clears throat> sorry. Those who are listening, I'm just going to I'll I'll excuse myself.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So my last question is really driving the gospel home and uh, just will love what you have to say to the audience about this. Because we know God is holy, perfect love, and we know he's perfect, holy justice at the same time. So he's full love, full justice. So how is God still upholding his perfect, holy justice by allowing his son to be murdered unjustly?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the unjust murder is coming from the Romans. And you have, you know, you have Acts 2 talking about Peter talking to the Jews saying, You crucified him. So you have humanity's sin unjustly killing Christ. And yet you have Isaiah 53 it's the will of the Lord to crush him, right? Mm-hmm. So how is this just? Well, a lot of people, it's it's easier for us to think of the cross as an act of love because it's saving. But we also have to remember the cross is also the greatest demonstration of the justice of God, hmm. uh, because God did uh, bring judgment upon sin and pour out his wrath. Hmm. This is Romans chapter three, that the cross is a demonstration of the righteousness of God to show that he's righteous, that he won't overlook sin. And so what's beautiful and where Romans 3 lands is that he is he is the just and the justifier. The cross is the way that he he actually takes guilty people and declares them innocent and righteous while also maintaining his own justice. Because our sin is punished in the cross of Christ. God's justice is upheld and yet we can be forgiven because Christ paid the penalty for our sins so the cross is the is is the greatest demonstration of the love and justice of God
3: hmm.
2: so in other words God is the only one that can absorb all that sin and it of the... was it
0: was it was justly placed on Christ although Christ himself was not the one who sinned the judgment was just because the sin was upon him
1: hmm. and what's what's incredibly important in this whole conversation is, to understand that we're talking about the triune God yeah, because sometimes it can be confusing to people. Like, wait a second, yeah. like God did it, but then God was dying. And is he confused or no, we're talking about father, son, and Holy spirit, um, united in purpose, united in being,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, accomplishing this together. So the cross is the self-substitution of God. Mm-hmm. It's God giving himself out of love for us. It's God um, bearing the very penalty in our place so that we can be reconciled. And if you don't, if you don't have a solid Trinitarian understanding going into the cross, then that's where you end up in all kinds of mistakes. And what a lot of, I think a lot of popular preachers have done and where it's created a lot of criticism of Pitting the father against the mm. son, if it's mm-hmm. a fault murdering the son, mm-hmm. just you know, the father's angry and the son is loving. And that's not what you see in scripture at all. You see right. father, son, and spirit united in this work of salvation.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a perfect transition to this last question, ending ending this conversation, landing the plane. Um, and I want to kind of kind of play this off of each other. So you talk about towards the end, um, that the, the atonement accomplishes something it's not just a possibility it's just kind of out there in the open it's just hey anybody who wants to take this come on in and take this where it's a, it's it's just it's just kind of waiting to be finished um so what what does the uh, atonement actually do like you say with, within um the trinitarian persons and then um following on from that what does it compel us to do it's we're not we're not told to complete the work we're told to to go from this work as a result of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd want to say what the atonement accomplishes is it's multidimensional. I mean, it's reconciliation, adoption, bearing shame, glorification of God, healing, bringing us out of exile, bringing us home, providing an example, setting us free. I mean, on and on and on. And I unpack these in the books, but Mm -hmm. it's multidimensional in that uh, we'll spend eternity worshiping the slain lamb on the throne for all that he's accomplished for us, the fullness of the good news of God's grace in Christ. And that actually leads to what I think is really one of the real practical um, payoffs in this is that all of that is ours because we are in Christ. So what I try and do in the book is say a bridge between the doctrine of the atonement And the daily lives of Christians is union with Christ. Hmm. And the doctrine of union with Christ tells us that in Christ, well, I mean, Ephesians one tells us this explicitly in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. It means that all that Christ accomplished on the cross, it's already ours through faith. Mm -hmm. That means most people think, well, he forgave me of my sins, but I'm not like, um, I'm not like, you know, innocent because Mm -hmm. I still struggle a lot Mm -hmm. or like fully adopted into the family because I still wander or, Mm -hmm. you know, I still have some of my shame because I still still
0: kind of like the atonement's kind of like an open door and you're like, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of out sometimes.
1: Yeah. And so to be able, I mean, as a preacher, I love to be able to just declare people's identity in Christ over them. And to be Mm -hmm. able to say, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, if you've trusted in him, this is true of you right now. You are not a slave to sin. Mm-hmm. You are washed of your uh, of your guilt and your shame. You have victory in God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And that th- these things are already true of you. And so that's where it's, we have to have, you know, we often think of, it takes faith to believe that God exists. It takes just as much faith to believe we are who God says we are. Um, mm, that's I, true yeah i don't usually feel <laughs> yeah. i don't usually feel like i'm righteous
0: no <laughs>
1: i still struggle and i sin and i blow yeah. and yet to be able to come and confess my sins and come to the lord and remember because of the cross i've been declared righteous and it's not based on my works it's based on god's grace mm. so that's such good news i mean the cross is not ultimately a message of kind of dragging us through guilt of like, look how bad you are that Jesus had to do this for you. I mean, we need to understand the weight of our sins. Absolutely. The telos of the cross is joy of this is who I am now because of what God has done for me. Uh, And we get to live in light of that. So I want to understand the depths of the atonement. But man, that's just a foundation to walk on in life. If I get to go live as a person who's been set free of sin, who's been adopted into a family who knows that my future is guaranteed. And I've got a purpose of witnessing to Christ in the crucified in the cruciform kingdom of God.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah.
2: Well, it's the best, best, be- most beautiful love story ever told. And you it's... live in Hollywood and Hollywood <laughs> tries to remake yeah. the, the most beautiful in man-made terms. And you, you can't just got to out- turn do... in your
0: manuscript to be uh to be a Hollywood movie one day. Yeah. You
2: can't, you can't outdo God's story. Well,
1: J.R. Tolkien said that every every story that we come up with is an echo of yeah, right. true story. Yep. You know, totally. So yeah. you can kind of see that. You can look at it that way and say they're trying.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they've, true. they've got some. They've got something there. Um, well, Doctor Tree, thank you so much for coming on our show for talking about this. And we always mm-hmm. like ending these episodes um, with where can people find you? Where can people find Reality LA? Tell us a little bit about your church. What you guys do?
1: Yeah, I mean I can find uh, our church at realityla.com. I mean, we're in the heart of Los Angeles. We preach the word and feed the hungry and pray for the renewal of our city. God's done a really great work. Um and yeah, I mean I'm on I'm on social media. I I'm on and off of social media. <laughs> for the sake of That's my good. Yep.
0: Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um and would love to connect with people there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you so much for writing this for your ministry in Los Angeles. I mean, it's needed everywhere, um, but especially so in Los Angeles. Thank you for for doing this and taking the time for coming on our show.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate thank it.
0: Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel. From wh- whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from, or confessional tradition, uh, we all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith different backgrounds ethnicities and and denominations Uh, we we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before authors that you might not have heard of before Um, i've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these if you want to go to our show notes find a link to the publisher that helps them out a ton a link to the author's page to the book to purchase it from the publisher themselves it really helps them um, expose their work uh through the publisher themselves
2: Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out, and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to wet your palate you can. We've already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there.
0: Yeah. So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher rate and review us, that's, that's how we're, that's how we're best known. It's how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and, and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and, and read really well, all under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ.